this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Literature, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ellie Acton. Anne Davila Cardinal writes stories that thrill you. She writes about lives that face challenge and find a way through, despite the horror that chases them. She writes about Puerto Rico and trauma, and belonging somewhere. I can honestly say I have enjoyed every word in Five Midnights and Category 5, her two recently released young adult novels that follow Lupe and Javier as they face apparitions, ghosts, and shape-shifting monsters, as well as their own flesh and blood, until they eventually find themselves. Listen in as we chat about these two magnificent books, about her own life as a self-proclaimed Gringa Rican, and about what's next for her as a novelist. Hi, Anne. Thanks for chatting with me today. Hi, Ellie. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Yeah, so before we dive into chatting about Five Midnights and Category 5, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I'm a... um a writer from Vermont. I'm originally from New York City, but I've lived in Vermont for a very long time. I'm, uh, I call myself a Gringa Rican because I'm half Puerto <laughs> Rican and half um, oh, Swedish, Irish, English. That's Gringo, <laughs> you know? Um, and I uh, work for Vermont College of Fine Arts. I recruit for their MFA programs. And um, I have a son, Carlos, who's 23. And my husband, Doug, and I live in a small town north of Stowe in Vermont. So in Vermont. Great. Wonderful. So we're chatting today uh, about your most recent books, Five Midnights and Category Five. Five Midnights came out last year and Category Five was just released. I'm really excited to talk about them. Thank you. Um, Me too. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about Five Midnights? Sure. Five Midnights started... um, I'm, I was always sort of fascinated with the concept of El Cuco. So El Cuco is the Hispanic boogeyman. And um, he appears in pretty much every Latino culture. He uh, He's called El Coco in Cuba and Cucuy in Mexico. And, you know, he just appears everywhere. So I became sort of interested in him because he's what parents threaten their children with when they're misbehaving. So they say, you better go to bed or El Cuco is going to get you. Right. Which which as a horror writer fascinates me because what a thing to tell a kid before they go to bed. So I, it was a particular, a time of particular powerlessness as a parent myself. And so I was sort of fascinated by the idea of threatening kids with, you know, supernatural vengeance. And so I started to think about, you know, what happened if 
they, he did come. What if he was listening? And so I, I, whether or not I intend to many, the theme of addiction comes through in many of my, my writings, because um, as the daughter of an addict, it is something that I molded me when I was growing up. And so I sort of, um, I came up with this concept of these boys um, in my mother's town in Puerto Rico, the, the, it had changed very much. When I was a kid, it was basically farmland. And then it became um, very urban. And I learned the word tiroteo, which means shoot out, you know, when I was seven. And it just changed very rapidly. And so I sort of explored the idea of these five boys in this town, middle class. Nobody ever talks about addiction um, mm. in terms of middle class. It's always, you know, people living on the street or or poor. And addiction hits every class. So I sort of wanted to look at that. And um, so my idea was the neighborhood is changing and drugs were coming in, which is exactly what happened. And um, so the mothers don't know what to do. And so they threaten the boys with El Cuco. And what essentially happens is if they don't clean up by 18, he comes for them. And so um, I started exploring that and I ended up really enjoying it. And of course I finished the first draft and I said, oh, because El Cuco in my book, changes form based on their fears. Um, and so I realized after I'd finished the first draft that my El Cuco is an addiction. Wow, yeah. Um, and so I really, you know, and I wanted to show all sides of Puerto Rico. I'm in love with the island, you know, um, and I I also wanted to show some of the hard parts and and the things they've struggled with. And the interesting thing is that the, the two main characters, there's a, a, a young girl from Vermont who's half like me, and a young boy who Javier who lives down there and he's, he's a uh, um, Puerto Rican on both sides. And what's sort of interesting is they ended up both being parts of myself um, and expressing feelings that I had, um, which I think happens to a lot of writers. You know, as I was reading uh, through five midnights, I immediately fell in love with Lupe. She's feisty and independent and intelligent. And I think she's really an important part of just her character is really important in the book, weaving all the different elements that you've got kind of at play. I'm so happy to hear that, Ellie, because Lupe is a controversial character. I was Lupe sort of is who I wished I was at mm. 17 because I, I didn't say what I thought and I didn't fight for things. That's something that didn't come, that came with age. Um, and I wanted to sort of explore what would it be like if I was untamped, you know, at that age. And, but the thing is, is that a lot of people, the biggest complaint I hear about the book is that they found her shrill and um, too aggressive. And I was like, well, if she were a boy, would they be saying the same things? Um, so I, I'm, you know, I sort of, chuckle at it. It doesn't really bother me, but I find it interesting because I thought she was fun. Um, and, and there was one reviewer who was, who was a, a middle-aged man who was reviewing it. And um, I'm not sure he realized it was a young adult book, but anyway, he said she was shrill and, and too high strong. And I wanted to say, do you know any teenage girls? Sure. <laughs> because I, I was one and I know many and, you know, right. you're, you're missing the point, but um but anyway, I'm glad to hear that you liked her because I, I, I think she's a trip and she changed, she changes a lot um, between the first and second book. Yeah. Yeah. And I also, you know, I think too, she's a great um, kind of catalyst to talk about trauma and to talk about the trauma of 
um, addiction and the trauma of loss um, and how she navigates that as, you know, how her, her internal character development happens on the page, I think is um, very poignant and very important, honestly, especially for young adult readers who, you know, there's, there's uh, novels out there that they can learn about themselves, but not a lot where they can learn about how to navigate how they're changing in regards to traumatic situations. You, you just basically hit on the reason I wrote the book. Um, and actually the reason I write for teens is because when I was a kid, there were no books like that. And um, I didn't see myself, um, you know, it has changed of late. There's some, you know, with the, we need diverse voices. There's all sorts of diverse books. There's all sorts of um, um, change coming in publishing. It's slow. Um, but in, in those days there wasn't even young adult as a category. And so, I, I didn't see myself, I didn't see, you know, there was this perception as children's literature is something, you know, you, you don't want to hit, hit them with anything heavy, you know, because they're children. And it's like, no, actually, they're, a lot of them are dealing with things that are very difficult. And, and if you don't speak realistically, you're not going to get, get their attention. And so I, I like the idea of, of maybe reaching somebody like me. Um, right. And losses, you also hit on the other theme that always, even when I'm writing picture books, it comes out. I mean, I, you know, my dad died when I was eight. And it when you have a parent die young, when you're young, it defines, very much defines who you are and who you become. Um, and so I also wanted to talk to, to kids who had to experience that. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, Lupe's strength um, does that very, very well. Thank you. I'm, yeah. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah. So, you know, you've talked a little bit um, about Five Midnights and about the characters. Um, I know you you have written some other things. You have a lot of background in writing different genres. But how did you, you when did the transition come where you knew that you wanted to write YA and you wanted to write horror or thrillers? Um, it happened at Vermont College of Fine Arts. I, uh, I mean, horror is something I, I grew up with. I, right. I was attracted to it very young. I had three brothers older and things were always around the house. And, and as somebody who suffers from it, from anxiety, um, I find it comforting. And people always said to me, I can't write or read horror because I'm too scared. And I was like, no, no, you're missing the point. I am too. But right. the thing is, is that it makes the things I'm scared of seem less scary because at least there's not zombies coming, you know? And so it, it helps and when I was a kid, it really helped with me dealing with the nightmares I was dealing with because, you know, I'm reading about these dolls coming alive and killing you in your sleep. So um, it was very helpful that way. Um, in terms of young adult, I was actually at a lecture. Um, a friend, Sunday Frazier, um, I was in the adult program. You know, I went to the, the MFA in writing program and I went to a lecture during the MFA in writing for children and young adults program. Uh, given by an incredible writer, Sunday Frazier from California. And she, it was about loss. Um, and she was, gave this lecture and I was blown away um, by the discussion of craft. But so it has all the elements of, of adult lit in that you're talking about craft and you're talking about how to, you know, bring the story forward and the character's development. But there's this added responsibility of who you're writing. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it adds an additional depth to it that really interests me, particularly because, as I said, you know, books were incredibly important getting me through times in my life. And so um, 
I, and I realized I wrote a lot about that period anyway. I just wrote about it from an adult perspective. So it was sort of a natural transition, though I do go back and forth between adult and young adult. So how did the idea for Javier and Lupe's adventures, how did Five Midnights and Category 5 come to you? I had an idea um, for a series originally of um, supernatural Latino lore, you know, uh, just a series of, of books of young people dealing with these particular legends. And El Cuco was a natural for me, as I had said earlier, um, you know, the other ones like I came to realize that like Chupacabra, he's kind of been done. Um, and, and then, you know, aliens in El Yunque is another one in Puerto Rico and that it's very hard to write that without being silly. And so I sort of like was trying to come up with a series of stories. And so I started with the El Cuco. And then when we were discussing what my second book would be with Tortine, um, I sort of went off book in terms of, um, legends because uh I, I went back to ghosts which are something that that fascinate me um and so i just decided to take it in a different direction and while i was in copy edits for five midnights hurricane maria happened oh, in right. Puerto Rico. so you know for any puerto rican whether they're on the island or in the states it's um you have life before maria and after right, right. and so I, I really needed to address that and so that that sort of it took on its own life that way um, and I wanted to put those characters because, you know, Maria happens right after the, the, the events of Five Midnights. So um, so I wanted to address that in, in the second book. But horror, horror has always comforted me um, and writing for teens is just fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Category 5, uh, chat with me a little bit about that. So the same characters, Lupe, Javier, who else is also carrying on their story there? Marisol. Um, and I'm smiling because Marisol was, okay, I was um, discussing sort of my, when I was first writing Five Midnights, I was on a balcony in Puerto Rico with Dominic Stansberry, who is a, a fabulous um, crime writer. And I was talking about the international, I mean, international, supernatural um, threat of El Cuco. And he said, he is the one who started talking to me about human threats. And so you need this sort of diversionary tactic and you could bring in a human thread and, or a minion or whatever. And so Marisol came from that discussion. And the interesting thing is, is that I added her in and my editor is like, oh, oh, I like her. <laughs> she, she needs to have more of a role. And then she just sort of came to life and um, she, it, she, she completely took off in directions I never anticipated. Um, and then when I, by the time I got to category five, she represented very much a, a, another side of me. You know, I'm not, she's another part of me that is sort of um, the part that lives on the island in my heart, you know? Um, but she's a, she's another one. She's bold. She says what she thinks. She's intelligent. Um, I love her. And then Carlos, who is, who is um, the most fun to write. He was in the first book. He's uh, one of the five boys and he's a reggaeton star. You know, it's a Puerto Rican um, urban music. And uh, I love writing him because he's just fun. And so I wanted to bring him into category five. And he was one of the bright parts of that for me. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you talk a lot about drawing from your own uh, lived experiences, your own personality. Are there other people in your life that you uh, kind of pull things from here and there to construct your characters? 
that's a brilliant segue, Ellie, to the fact that I was sitting here thinking I didn't talk about Tio Esteban. So the, the, the adult the adult character in Five Midnights, who is Lupe's uncle, who's the chief of police, is based on my actual Tio Esteban, my, my uncle Esteban. And um, he works for the police and he, in my life, has been a huge figure. Um, you know, I, I when you grow up in an alcoholic home, I mean, my mother didn't take me to the dentist and, you know, I, I was sort of free range. And when I went down there, I felt taken care of. And Esteban is the kind of guy who makes you feel take, taken care of all the time. And if if trouble happens, he's your man. And so I like the idea of bringing him in as a grounding force because Lupe's mm. mother's gone or father's a drunk. He's the one adult in her life who's, who's stable and, and always there. Um, and so he continued to the next one as well because he's, I just love him. Um, yeah, he is hard not to love. I absolutely adored him. I think he's a, a good, I think he's a good example of being able to have uh, characters beyond just the main characters that are so well wrought and so rounded. And so, like you said, you use the word grounded. He's definitely a very grounded character. And it's interesting. Every time there was a scene between him and Lupe, I got so excited because I knew that something important was going to happen. If they were in the same room or they had a meeting, they met up somewhere, I knew something important was going to happen. And not just for the actual story, but for their characters, for Lupe's development, for um, you know, her internal search for home, which, you know, carried on throughout the entire book. And I think was a, a very interesting um, kind of plot line beyond, behind El Cuco, behind the mystery and the, the horror that was happening around her, where she was searching for a place to belong. Absolutely. You, you're, you're uncanny. Um, because this is as somebody who, who is, who feels sort of split. You know, I, 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 when I'm on the Island, I'm comfortable and I feel at home and I, I, my family is so important. Do I fit in? No. When I'm mm. on the, in the States, I feel sort of the same way. And, and it's like you have your feet in two different cultures. Um, mm. And so it is a search for home. And the interesting thing is I've, I've, I've found the perfect combination now between Vermont um, and Puerto Rico. You know, I go, I go to Puerto Rico in the winter and I'm in Vermont the rest of the year. And, um, I've sort of found my peace with that, but with Lupe, it's, you know, she is looking for the grounding and he is that. Um, yeah. And for me, my, my family in Puerto Rico is absolutely that is yeah. they are home in that way. Um, Cause I went through a very, uh, when, after my father died, my mother's drinking accelerated and she would send me down for the summer. That's why I'm so attached to that. And identify as, as Puerto Rican is because they, you know, my aunt took me to the dentist. She, you know, they fed me. They, they talked to me about my life. They made sure I, they were just so kind to me and they took care of me for the entire summer. And so I always say that they basically saved my life um, mm. because it was so challenging. And I don't even think they realized the extent. Um, mm. So, you know, but that's why I have such strong attachments to the island. Family is by far the first priority. Um, yeah. And I loved that. Yeah. And how did, how did Lupe, how did she influence you as you're writing the book and in retrospect, how, how has, has she helped your own um, finding of home? You know, the, the balance that you found uh, in your own life, how did she help you with that? 
That's an interesting question. I mean, I, I think I was able to almost recreate who I was at her age mm. or younger um, through her. And, and it's a way of processing things, you know, I mean, I think as writers, we're always processing things that we've gone through ourselves, but um, you know, she, I was able to take it to, and, and Javier is absolutely the boyfriend. I, I always hold <laughs> the head down there. I know, I know he's a recovering heroin addict, but it's, um, I always would like, when I go there in the summer and I was a teen, I was like, oh, you know, I want to meet a handsome boy. And, you know, it, it, it just didn't happen. Um, and so I was able to sort of live out some things that I always wished I'd experienced through mm. her. Um, but I think we've sort of figured it out together. And I think the interesting thing is, is that in the, in, in category five, they, they evolved between books without any help from me. Um, when I started writing it, they'd all sort of changed over the course of the year. And I found that fascinating. Um, and so she was, she was calmer and she, cause she did find a piece of home. Yeah. Um, and so I guess she sort of, she represented what I didn't find until I was in my thirties, which is after my mother passed, I started you know, going to Puerto Rico every year. And I, when I had my son, we started going, so he would feel that that was part of him. And so, um, and in fact, he identifies as Puerto Rican. So because that was, you know, that was where we found strong family. Um, so I guess that, you know, she helped me sort of process my relationship with the island um, and give her the gift of the understanding younger. Mm. Yeah, Absolutely. I love the way you talk about Puerto Rico. I love the way, I love the version of Puerto Rico that shows up in these books. Why don't you tell me more about how you, how you see and how you experience Puerto Rico? Um, so when I was a kid, it was through the lens of, of older people, right? So I would go down there and my mother would drop me at my great aunt's house, who I loved. I was named after her. We were born on the same day in terms of, you know, certainly not the same year. But she, <laughs> I loved her. And we, we ended up butting heads eventually because we're too much alike. But, you know, I'm here with this 80-something-year-old woman in this house. And she, she only, the only television she watched were priests on, on TV. I, I, I kept saying to her, how can you watch this? And she said, Oh, this man is, is brilliant. You should, I was like, no. Um, and so, you know, I, I, it was all, and she didn't want to go to the beach. Now here's the thing they, she would say, no, 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 we don't go to the beach. Poor people go to the beach. Now today I recognize that as racism. Sure. Because it was like, you don't, and I didn't even, it didn't even occur to me because I, I guess, you know, I, I wasn't brought up that way because my mother was, was, um, socialist and very liberal, but she, she, you didn't go to the beach. So I didn't, I mean, Ellie, I, I was going to Puerto Rico every summer and I never went to the beach. And, and I mean, that's a crime. There should be laws against that. And so, <laughs> and so the, the Puerto Rico I saw then, and I've actually just finished a, um, a, a dull book um, about my relationship with that land in Bayamón. And um, because she was just, she, she, she had this acre of jungle in the middle of what became a suburban sort of area. And um, I grew up sort of running through the trees there. And now, now I can go and experience the things I want to do, like being on the beach. And Theo Esteban has a condo that he, um, um, in Luquillo that he lets us use because in February, it is too cold to go to the beach, Annie. 
It's only five <laughs> degrees. And my, my, my aunt has her sweater on. And, you know, so <laughs> I was, I'm able to explore it and go to El Yunque almost every time the rainforest down there is just amazing. Um, and, and through the college, I discovered this area that the tourists don't go to. It's sort of, you know, harder to get to, but it's just extraordinary with waterfall fed pools and, you know, the, the cookies, the tree frog singing. It's, it's amazing. Um, so I, I wanted to capture all the sides and, and, and all San Juan. I mean, I adore it. It, it is a little, um, I, I fantasized about it when I was little because we'd walk through to go to the fort, you know, to go to El Morro. And I'd look at all these houses up in the balconies and I'd see the stores and it was all fascinating to me. And, and I've spent more time there and it's great. It's, it's difficult to get in and out of, and, um, you know, it has its challenges, but it's just a beautiful place. So I wanted to sort of explore all the parts of the Island that I loved. Um, yeah. And some of the darker parts. Um, right. And so, and it was interesting because La, La Perla is, is um, the neighborhood below old San Juan and I call it El Rubí. Um, mm-hmm. But my uncle wouldn't let me go there. And, uh, you know, and it's so funny to say he wouldn't let me. You can't tell me that. No one can <laughs> tell me I can't do something, but he can. And so then they filmed, Maria happened, and they had filmed Despacito there, that, that music video. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden they're doing tourist tours of, of La Perla because of El Despacito. So they're doing these tours for $5. So it changed the, the face of, of the neighborhood. And so I was able to go down there and, and my, my cousin and I went down and we looked around and I, I, I was able to capture some of the best parts of that because I realized I always was told it was a slum. It's not a slum. It's a neighborhood. These are people who live there and they cook food and they fight and they make love and, and they have music playing. And it's like, I want, I was so good to be able to go in there and see that without this, this stereotypical sort of haze over it. Um, Mm. So I don't know, you know, I really wanted to capture all sides and I, I hope I was able to do that. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Absolutely. Yeah, I. Uh, one of the things that jumped out to me uh, was the the different textures of the different areas uh, in of that sh- that Lupe and Javier explored um, in the book in the books. Um, yeah, it really struck me as personal and rich. It wasn't just a tourist snapshot. You know, you could tell that you as a writer understood Puerto Rico at a different level than just as a researcher. You know, that it was it was something that you um, found in your identity and that found its way into the book for sure. Yeah. And that's that's very interesting because I didn't see it as a tourist. Uh, I mean, when I was a, a little kid and my dad was still alive and we went down there, they, they dragged us to the Bacardi factory. Now, I was seven, maybe six. <laughs> Who brings five children? The Bacardi factory. Um, and I remember it was kind of fascinating, you know, but, um, but that, that was the only time we did touristy things. And then, you know, those bad years where I went down alone, um, we didn't do any touristy things. And so Mm -hmm. 
now as an adult, I'm able to do them. So I couldn't even have spoken to you about those. People would talk about, you know, the parties and the, and the beach and the cocktails. And I would be like, what? Um, but for me, it was old ladies on in rocking chairs with Coca-Cola on the porch. That was m- the bulk of my experience. Um, so it was really nice to be able to explore it as an adult and do the touristy things. And it is just beautiful. I, if there, you know, if there's a section from the book that you, uh, from either book, from Five Midnights or Category Five, um, that you feel uh, like you want to share with us, I would love to hear you read some. So this is from Category Five, um, and this is the, the the chapters as in Five Midnights alternate between Javier's viewpoint and Lupe's. Um, so this is a chapter that's Lupe's chapter seven, and I'm just going to read you a little bit at the beginning of that chapter. The blue glow was coming from deep within the trees, and Lupe couldn't take her eyes off of it. Do you, do you think it's them? What everyone has been seeing? She whispered. I don't know what else it could be. But the light was dimming, getting more distant. Javier let out a breath next to her. Thank God they're moving away from us. But she started walking toward the light. Finally, a way she could help. Lupe, what are you doing? I want to see them. Let's get closer. Come on. Javier stood firm. You're serious. Of course. She could see he wasn't buying it. And for a moment, one moment, she wondered if he was right. He was the stable one, after all. Look, Javier, where would the El Cuco investigation have been without us, huh? Don't you want to see what this is about? He shrugged a bit, and she knew she had appealed to his curiosity. Yeah, but what if they are the ones taking hearts? I'm quite attached to mine, he said, hand to chest. They won't even know we're there. I just want to get a look to see what we're dealing with. Come on, detective. She smi- he smiled back and she knew he ha- she had him. She held out her hand for him to take. This was her kind of date. He clasped her hand and they made their way to the tree line slowly and silently. She could see the haze of the blue glow in the distance like a beacon. Step by step, they picked their way into the trees, careful not to trip on any roots or branches. The dried leaves beneath their feet made small, crisp sounds, but the wind and the crashing waves provided cover. When they were several yards away, the sun fully set and dark covered all but whatever or whoever was glowing. So they stopped behind a palm trunk and watched. Javier whispered into her ear and a tingling sensation spread throughout her body. Damn, was she like turned on by danger? They're definitely people or the shapes of them. At first it seemed to be one mass, a band of light, but then it broke into dozens of individual figures, glowing slightly blue like the Bio Bay waters, as Lupe saw what Javier saw. It was a swarm of people, ghostly and glowing, moving among the trees. Lupe and Javier couldn't see their faces since they were walking away, but the women wore longish skirts that brushed the ground in tatters. The men were dressed in suits, or the remnants of them, some with the remains of hats on their heads. Their hair was not unlike the old man they'd almost run over, long and wispy. There was even a little girl in a once frilly dress with rotten bows in her hair, holding the skeletal hand of the woman next to her an eyeless doll dangling from her other hand. They don't look like zombies. I'm thinking ghosts, don't you agree? She turned around to look at Javier, the blue of the supernatural being sparkling in his eyes. He nodded, definitely fantasmas. The glow was moving away en masse into the trees in the distance. Are we going to follow them? Javier asked. Lupe looked around. They had no flashlights, no water, and Lord knew if the swarm was dangerous or not. Nah, I'm curious, not stupid. Let's go back and tell my uncle. They had just started to turn turn around when Carlos's hit song blared from Javier's pocket, the thrumming beat echoing off the trees. 
He yanked it from his pocket and silenced it. He looked at Lupe and whispered, now I get service? It was the rustling sound that reached them first. Their heads shot back in the direction of the glow to see the entire group stop and slowly turn back to face them. For one second, Javier and Lupe and the ghostly swarm just stared at one another. Then they started coming. Oh my gosh. That gave me absolute chills. Oh, and I'm so glad that you read that that section because I think it's a wonderful example of how, as a writer, you you are so able to take dialogue, really interesting and real dialogue, and weave it into such rich scene and rich setting. We can we can picture what's happening really clearly. The description of the young girl ghost with her rotten bow and the eyeless doll dangling from her skeletal hand. I mean, oh my God. Thank you. That's actually, that scene takes place, um, he takes her to a beach he's discovered. And the thing about Vieques is that the Navy had taken over three quarters of it um, without, you know, they took it over. They displaced thousands of people. Um, and so they, when they were, they left in, um, the late, early 2000s. And, um, so, but there are beaches with unexploded ordnance on it. And so you can't go on them because there are bombs in the freaking sand. And so I sort of explore that in this there, it turns out the beach they're on when they're running away is, is, is unexploded ordnance. And I found, you know, I always found that sort of alarming. Um, yeah. And also, I bring the um, wild horses. There's wild horses on Vieques as well. Um, it's, a, it's a beautiful place. Is there more for Lupe and Javier? Will there be a third book? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm not against that idea. Um, but we didn't, Tortine and I had not planned one. Um, so we'll see where things, you know, take us. Um, Tortine is your publisher, right? Yes. Yes. And I had an amazing, the team there is just amazing. So we had a blast. Um, but the, um, I discovered after I finished category five, that there are catacombs under old something <gasps> that, that leave from La Perla and they, they go to the forts and I think it was an escape route right. for soldiers. Yeah. And so, you know, boy, I could have fun oh, with that. Yeah. So, so that was, that was, uh, you know, something I said, Oh, you know, um, but for right now, you know, they're resting. They're, they're continuing to grow behind the scenes. You'll discover them maybe yeah. later. Well, I, for one, sure hope that they have another adventure. I think they're fantastic. So, you know, that kind of that makes me wonder, what is your, what is your writing process? When you, when you have a new project or a new idea, how does that show up in your life? That's a very interesting question because the, my answer to it has changed very recently. And actually it started with category five. Um, I used to, uh, I was afraid of structure. You know, I, I, I didn't plot and I had this excuse that it was, um, you know, it interfered with my creative process. It was an excuse. Mm. Um, and so I have a friend, uh, Corey McCarthy, who's a, a young adult writer and they're also a screenwriter. And so they have this method of plotting based on, on screenplays. And, so I tried all these different things. I looked at the snowflake method. The minute I saw that it had a, a spreadsheet involved, I wasn't going to do it. You know, my brain shuts off. And so it took a while, but Corey, so Corey plots before they read a book, halfway through, replots, and then after they finish, plots again. And 
never shoved it on me or whatever, but I, I became interested. And they, they and their wife, Amy Rose Capetta, helped me plot um, Category 5. And I have to tell you, it was game-changing. Mm. It was absolutely game-changing because I came up with a, a, a narrative plot and then I ran it by my editor and she gave me feedback and then I revised it. And that, so by the time I sat down, it, it, it was, it almost wrote itself. Um, and so that was enlightening for me. And now I like the idea of plotting. It's kind of like my, my husband is a, um, a painter, a carpenter and a painter, and he spends, I don't know, nine tenths of the time of painting a room by prep, you know, by taping and, and by, putting down drop claws and whatever the painting itself is a small portion mm. of it. And, and so I realized that sort of the, the prepping for the book and understanding where I'm going is helpful to me. Um, I mean, maybe that won't be true in a different kind of novel I'm working on, but, it, but in the case of YA, it is really helpful for me. So I've, I've started plotting and I'm a convert. Yeah. yeah. And how has, how has the pandemic affected your writing process and your writing experience? You know, I thought it would be, the pandemic would be horrible um, being locked down. Um, and it is, it's scary time, um, especially when you're an anxious person. But I thought I'd hate working from home um, because I'm an extrovert and because I love my colleagues. And and it turns out that I'm, I'm better at my job because I'm more focused mm. and um, I'm liking it. And so I got back an hour and a half a day from not commuting right. and I'm writing. And so I have a, a book that comes out in 22 um, from uh, HarperCollins that I wrote it since I've been in lockdown. And I also have uh, finished revising a novel that I've been writing for 16 years. And so it, it, it definitely writing has been flowing. Um, and I'm not exactly sure why I'm not going to look a gift. Right. Yeah, that that is impressive. So you wrote a book and this is not YA. It is why the, the the one I finished in the with the one I'm doing with Harper Collins is a, a horror rom com and that's the only thing I can say about it, but it is young adult. And um I had a blast with that one. But that I did the first draft in, you know, during this time. And then the, the book I wrote in VCFA in the adult program, I um have been revising and changing over the years and I was I had all these sort of revelations in these last few months and just finished a draft last week. Wonderful. Wow. That's inspiring too. I got to get down to business. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it's just a matter of having the, like the brain space. And I was very surprised. Yeah. So what's your, what's your hope with your books? What is your hope with five midnights in category five? What is it that you, how do you want them to be out in the world? I mean, I, I, I want them to resonate with teens um, and and adults, but I, I want them to tell stories that I'd always wish were told. Um, and also, honestly, that, you know, am I the person who should be, there's only a few books based in Puerto Rico, um, especially in YA. And should I be the, the one writing this? I don't know. I mean, I've lived on it only for the summers, but, and there's some extraordinary YA writers coming out of there. Um, and so, you know, I, I wonder the next one I, I'm, I have coming out is actually based in Vermont. It has a Puerto Rican main character, but, but she's, it takes place in Vermont. 
So I'm, I'm, I wanted people to pay attention to the island, you know, to, to, to be able to, the biggest triumph was when people said to me, boy, I was hungry and I wanted an Alcapuria or I, you know, and it was like describing the food was important to me. And my editor was like, I want to be salivating. And so I was, you know, that was fun for me because that's a dimension. I mean, you can't go to Puerto Rico and Puerto Rican food is one of the best things about the island. Uh Um, And so, you know, I, those, I, if I could capture what I love about it in these books, if people would feel that, then I feel really good about it. Um, and I've become friends, my, my book launch next week, I've actually become friends with um, Luis Guzman, the actor, and he's another Puerto Rican in Vermont. And when he, you know, he read Five Midnights and he's like, yeah, that was awesome. El Cuco rules. And to be able to have somebody who, who is from that heritage as well, feel that way about it, it's really exciting. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I actually, I come from a literary family on the island. Um, my great, great uncle was um, a very famous poet, Virgilio Davila. And he, you know, in fact, their, their, their apartment complex is named after him and their statues. And, um, and his son was actually a, another very well-known poet. And then my, my cousin Tere is a novelist down there, a fiction writer. And so, you know, I had this sort of responsibility of, of, of that heritage, um, yeah. but, but from a different perspective, having, you know, writing it from here. Right. So category five, your second book for, Lupe and Javier. It came out just a couple months ago in the middle of this big change in our history. Uh, how, you know, how has this year's book release gone during this pandemic? Well, it, it, it's delayed. I mean, it, it still came out um, mm-hmm. on June 2nd, but so June 1st, the night before it came out was a Monday and um, you know, you're excited the night before it comes out, but the Black Lives Matter movement, sort of hit a fevered pitch at that point. And I just did not feel like my voice as a 50 something white woman from, you know, here, look at my book. I I did not feel comfortable for that with that. And so I contacted my publisher and my editor and the publicist. And I said, look, I I don't feel good about this. Um, I think we should delay it. And they, they agreed with, and they, we had a whole conversation. And so they, we sort of gave the attention that, would have been divided between me and, a, and a, uh, another writer who was African-American and decided to move it to there. And I just stepped back and I really felt like my book, it's not that it didn't matter. It mattered a lot to me. I'm proud of it, but there were way more voices that needed to be heard and it was not mine. And so I stepped back. And so I waited and, um, and there's nothing noble about this. I just really, you know, these are voices that needed to be heard. So I, um, then after, you know, a bit of time, I'm like, okay, so now I feel like I'm ready to start talking about this. And that's when I, um, I asked Luis if he would help me with the launch. Um, so it's really exciting for me. And, and I want to tell the stories of the island and I want to, to, especially my relationship with it, which is basically what I read about. Um, so I'm glad I was, you know, I'm glad it was out there and I was very proud of it, but now is that now I feel a little better about officially launching. Well, you know, you also talk quite a bit about Vermont and about the Vermont College of Fine Arts um, and your job there. Um, I also read that you were part of arranging 
one of their important residencies uh, because it is a low residency program. They have, you know, these 10 day long get togethers and you arranged uh, some for Puerto Rico. Is that correct? Yes. And I, I ran them for five years and then I handed them over to a wonderful poet um, and Victorio Reyes and he ran them for a bit. And then at Maria, we had to move it and we ended up moving it to Mexico. Um, so I hope at some point we can at least alternate and, and go back. But that was a big deal for me because um, a lot of the literature on the island, the, the writers on the island are not known in the States because they're not translated. And so and mo- when you ask most Americans about Puerto Rican writers, they come up with the, the New York Rican writers, you know, the ones from, from the mainland. And so I love the idea of a bridge of some of, of some kind, and there is a you know there are people working on this in the New Yorkian um, Poets Cafe. There's one down in Old San Juan, and there's one in New York, and there are bridges. But this was a great opportunity to connect with writers down there and connect our writers from the from the MFA and writing program with with local writers in Puerto Rico, and we had extraordinary experiences. So you know we'd spend a few days in Old San Juan meet the writers, do cultural trips, and then go to the rainforest and to an eco lodge uh, called Casa Cabuy. And we would do a seven hour hike. You'd see no other people. Um, it's this wall of rainforest that we do these readings, um, you know, with the background of the rainforest and there's a waterfall fed pool behind the hotel. And I mean, it was just an amazing experience. So to be able to not only like show people the Island in a way that they were able to fall in love with it too, but to, to also connect um, these writers was really important to me. Right, absolutely. And I I spied on a photograph of you online, I spied a little tattoo uh, among your many tattoos um, that looks like the VCFA, the Vermont College of Fine Arts logo. It is. So it's an important part of your life. Oh, I became a writer on that campus. I was not a writer beforehand. I didn't, you know, I, I loved literature. I studied Hispanic studies at Columbia and, um, you know, I, I've read voraciously my whole life, but um, in the undergraduate program at Vermont College, when we, when we had one, I sort of explored writing stories about my mother because my mother had died and my son would never know her. And so I sort of started documenting her stories and I started to fall in love with writing um, and I became a, a, a magazine writer and then, and, but the, I applied for the MFA in writing, writing program and did not expect to be accepted. Um, but I, I'd written a book with two poet friends called Sister Chicas. And, and, but I, it was, I knew that there were big holes in my craft. And so I was able to sort of work that through in the program. So beyond just the fact, I mean, my son was two when I started working at Vermont college and he's 23 now. So I, you know, my life sort of evolved completely on that campus. Um, the people who I work with are like family. And so when the, we went independent in 2008 um, and became Vermont College of Fine Arts, um, I, you know, I, it, I was part of it. I was there at the ground floor and it was an amazing experience. And I had, a, I was having a dream about AWP in Los Angeles and which I was about to go to. And I had a dream, my friend, Corey McCarthy, who I mentioned was going to be there. And I had a dream that Corey and I went to a tattoo parlor and got the logo tattooed. And um, Tom Green, the president at the time and the founding president paid for it. And so the next morning I messaged them both. I said, I had the funniest dream, you know, Corey and I were in Tom, you paid for it. And Tom wrote back and he said, I'm in, you do it. I'll pay. 
stories <laughs> that I'm in. And then suddenly we were, we were getting tattoos with the, with the VCFA logo. So, um, Oh, that's so fabulous. Yeah. But for both Corey and I, it was who, who have the tattoos and there's actually a couple who have joined us now. Um, it's just, you know, it, it was a place where we became, you know, it's like, yeah. I, I became a writer. I became, um, an artist, I, it, it just allowed me the space to, to evolve that way. And so it's always going to be dear in my heart. Well, you've talked about uh, this book coming out with HarperCollins in, was that 2022? I believe so. Awesome. And you've talked about writing more during the pandemic. What else are you working on? What's next for Anne Cardinal? I wrote an essay this weekend, Ellie. Oh, um, and I hadn't done that since the program. So <laughs> don't ask me. It's just really, my friend Makaya Bakewalt is a novelist. She and I have been very supportive to each other through these, this publishing adventure. And um, she's an essayist. And so I, and I hadn't written, written nonfiction since my magazine days. And so it was really sort of exciting to do that. So I'm trying to work different muscles, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. And the next book is probably, I have a concept for an eco-horror um, adult novel. Mm. Um, I'm sort of fascinated with eco-fabulism. It's sort of the idea of dealing with the, 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 what we're dealing with ecologically. And if you write horror, you know, that's about as horrible as it gets. And so I like the idea of bringing that in, um, climate change. So I've begun outlining one and we'll see what happens. Oh, that's so exciting. I'm just a huge fan. Just huge. Thank you. That is so sweet. And I so appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. You're calling from Vermont and I'm chatting with you from Southeast Ohio, but it, you know, it feels like we're just in the same room having a good old friendly chat. And I really appreciate that. Oh, me too. And your, your, your perceptions and your insights into the book were sort of alarming. It was like you were there. Um, but I really appreciate the thoughtful questions and it's been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you for having me. And stay healthy and stay safe. You too. Thank you. Thank you.